welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. The star witness is on the stand in the Paul Manafort trial, Rick Gates, who flipped to testify against his former boss. Manafort's defense is to blame Gates for all his crimes. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jeff Kramer, managing director at the Berkeley Research Group. Jeff, whenever there's a witness who's cooperating, you hear people ask, but will the jury believe someone who admits to committing crimes? And juries do it all the time. The best example I can think of is uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano, who admitted to 19 murders, and they convicted Gotti. So what steps is the prosecution taking here to make sure the jurors believe Gates? Uh, You're exactly right. I mean, that is always the question. But, um, you know, that's the standard prosecutorial playbook. You know, this uh, flipper is testifying right now in hundreds of cases uh, in the U.S. Um, And you have to corroborate that witness. And and that's what they're doing here. And that can be done, you know, in the organized crime context, usually corroboration with uh, tapes or other witnesses. In fraud cases uh, like this, usually there's corroboration, if not from other witnesses, in documents. And that's what we have here. So in Mr. Gates says we set up 15, 14 or 15 overseas companies to facilitate the payments. And the prosecutors have documents showing 14 or 15 companies were set up overseas. Well, that corroborates, uh, that corroborates Mr. Gates. Gates did testify yesterday that he lied in a deposition in a civil case against Manafort. Is that going to create a problem for his credibility? You lied once. What are you lying now? It's definitely fodder on cross-examination. There's ample things, not only that Mr. Gates has lied before, but it turns out he was taking money from Mr. Manafort, unbeknownst to Mr. Manafort. But again, that's hardly you know a man-bites-dog story. There's a guy in the stand who was committing crimes with, the, with Mr. Manafort with respect to fraud. The fact that he's a fraudster and a liar is not shocking. Uh, jury's not going to like Mr. Gates. They're not going to trust him with their last dollar or their investment portfolio. But will they believe him? I think once he's corroborated by the documents and other witnesses, and just the logic that it's doubtful Mr. Gates would be the mastermind of a 20 or $30 million scheme in order to benefit Mr. Manafort, you know, that's a hard lift for the defense. Now, I just want to get your take on what's going on as far as the body language and the looks between Manafort and Gates. Many people have said that Manafort is sort of shooting daggers, staring Gates down, but Gates is not looking at at Manafort. As a prosecutor, what would you instruct your uh, witness to do? Exactly what he's doing is you look at the person asking the questions, you look at the jury, you don't get involved uh, with the defendant at all. And again, this is not shocking. Uh, There's someone on the stand that Mr. Manafort trusted for uh, literally a generation. They've been doing business together. So he views this as a betrayal, which in some respects it is. So it's not shocking he's throwing him daggers because Mr. Gates, with every time he answers a question, again, that's corroborated by other witnesses or documents, is really just building another brick in, uh, with the uh, prosecution's uh, case. So Mr. Gates is doing exactly what he should be doing. So uh, tensions seem to also be high between the judge and the prosecutors. The judge has been on the prosecutor's case to move the trial along, not to call people oligarchs, even not to make faces. And there's some odd things like the judge yesterday suggesting that the prosecu- one of the prosecutors was crying and the prosecutor saying, no, I'm not. What's going on here? 
this judge is, uh, is is pretty active in, in on trial. Some judges are more active than others. Uh, this one seems to be holding the prosecutor's feet to the fire, especially because they're the ones, the prosecutors are the ones, they're going to be dictating the time. They're the ones that uh, will be calling the witnesses and have to get through certain things. So if you want to keep this trial moving, uh, especially in August, which this judge does, you're going to be on the prosecutors. Uh, the faces, the crying, there's some other odd things coming from this judge who's been on the bench for a while. Uh, that's just, he's a character, uh, for lack of a better term. And again, this is not the prosecutor's first uh, first rodeo. They've been in, for, in front of difficult judges before. And at the end of the day, it does not matter. The judge does not determine guilt. You're just arguing to the people in the box. Only about 30 seconds here. Gates didn't specify what, how much the prosecutors would give him for a prison sentence if you know he went forward with his testimony. Do you think that that's already been hammered down with his lawyers, or it's up in the air? No, it is up in the air. If it was hammered down, he would have to say, you know, I've been promised 10 years or whatever. He's been giving what's called a, uh, a, a basically a, a discount based upon his testimony. It needs to be truthful. So the prosecutors will see how the testimony goes, not if there's a conviction, just if he's truthful, we'll make an argument to the judge, but it's up to the judge uh, to agree to a sentence. All right. Thanks so much, Jeff. I have so many questions. That's Jeff Kramer, Managing Director of the Berkeley Research Group. Just after Judge Richard Leon cleared the $85 billion deal between AT&T and Time Warner, AT&T's lawyer, Daniel Petricelli, talked about the court's verdict. The government could present no credible proof in support of any of its theories. This decision was a sound and proper rejection of all of the government's arguments to stop this merger. But the government says it could have presented that proof if the judge hadn't constrained its presentation of evidence. And it's appealing its decision, even though the deal is done. Joining me is Nicholas Economides, professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Nick, unsealed transcripts of the trial show that during private, the sidebar conversations, the judge repeatedly shot down the prosecution's arguments that he decided were repetitive or unhelpful in lines of testimony. Is that a strong argument that the prosecution is making? Uh, no, uh, I, I think that by itself is not going to be able to, to reverse a decision. I mean, the, it's true that the, uh, the judge did not allow the, uh, the government uh, all the time the government wanted to present its case, but this uh, actually happens in trials. I mean, it's up to the judge. I, I don't think that's enough to, to reverse a decision. What could make the difference uh, is that the judge um, was um, pretty absolute in the rejection of the government theory. Um, that is, he said, the judge said, that the, the merger will not, will not lead to any uh, increases in prices to consumers. Uh, that's a bit extreme. <laughs> and he, you know, to reject the government's position, the judge didn't have to conclude that. All he needed to conclude was that the, the, the increases would not be substantially reducing competition. But he went to the extreme and said there would be no uh, uh, increases at all uh, in prices to consumers uh, for for delivered content for um, for cable service. So um, that is um, something that um, is weak. Uh, so it is conceivable that the uh, Court of Appeals will reverse based on that 
point. What about the government's claim that the court ignored fundamental principles of economics and common sense? Is, is that in well, addition to what you mentioned? Well, I don't think the judge understood at all the government's case. They didn't understand the economics of bargaining. So that's why the government comes now to the Court of Appeals and says, look, I mean, this judge didn't understand the economics of bargaining. The economics of bargaining are an important part of mainstream economics. Uh, therefore, you should reverse based on, on that. At, at the same time, to a large extent, it's the government's responsibility to explain these economics to the judge, who, who is not an economist, right? He's, he's a judge. Uh, so he, the government should have explained much, much better uh, these economics of, uh, of bargaining and how they apply. So one thing is how they apply. The other thing is what, are, what they are. Uh, if the judge completely ignored significant parts of economic theory, that would be grounds for reversal. On the other hand, if the judge understands the basic idea of economics of bargaining, but um, rejects the way the government um, uh, specifically uh, interprets the facts, that cannot be reversed. Well, do you, do you, from looking at the evidence, do you think that the judge didn't understand the economic theories? Uh, I, I, I actually think that the, the economic theory went way over his head, yes. All right. I don't think he understood it. Now, AT&T's general counsel, David McAtee, said in a statement, appeals aren't do-overs, which exactly what appeals are. But what do you expect AT&T to argue in its response? Well, AT&T is going to say, well, the judge understands the basic theory. He doesn't need to understand anything more than what he understood. And that, in fact, um, uh, the interpretation by the judge of the various facts was correct, and uh, in fact, um, uh, nothing bad is going to happen because of this uh, merger. I mean, you have to keep in mind that the judge sided 100% with AT&T, so AT&T will find nothing wrong in what the judge said. Mm -hmm. Now, so Nick, the deal is already done. If the government does win, what will happen? They'll have to unravel the deal? They'll have to sell Time Warner? Yes. They, I don't think, uh, when you say the deal is done, yeah, the deal is done on paper, but uh, there, there is agreement between the government and AT&T that um, uh, Time Warner will be, uh, I think, until the end of February of uh, 19, uh, run as a separate company. So uh, I don't think there is going to be anything that cannot be reversed. So what are the odds that this will be reversed? I would say the, the probability that the Court of Appeals will uh, reverse this is small. I mean, I would say it's, it's, it's 10% or, or less. I wouldn't say that it's much more than that. So they have to find a, an error of law. And if they, if they find that there were, a, there were a lot of inequities in the trial, might that be enough? Might that add up to enough? Uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. Uh, ultimately, uh, it will depend on whether the general theory of the government makes sense to the Court of Appeals. Uh, if they think, well, if we were the judge, we would really rule completely differently. Uh, there is this possibility, but uh, usually uh, Courts of appeal try to be very specific to the case and try to limit their intervention to
to very specific um, actions of, uh, of the judge. Nick, do you see any signs in the market of reactions or the ramifications of this deal being approved? Well, I mean, you have to keep in mind that somehow the market in the very beginning thought that this was a good deal for AT&T. I'm not completely sure. Suppose that there is no legal challenge and it goes through. Is it clear that AT&T is going to be able to run Time Warner? AT&T is a company that is great in engineering and has great lawyers, but there has no expertise whatsoever in running a company like uh, Time Warner. All right. Thanks so much, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Nick Konamides, professor at NYU Stern School of Business. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.